Hello listeners and welcome to episode 93 of the Grimdark Podcast. This is James and it's actually me flying solo for the first time in a while today. Uh, as for, Unfortunately, as Mike mentioned during the last show, we both had some travel coming up. I actually spent about four weeks traveling straight, both uh, in Australia and abroad, and now Mike has headed off to Brazil. We did hope to get a uh, show in before the end of February uh, with both of us, but unfortunately, just calendars didn't work out, scheduling got mixed up, and so uh, Mike's now in Brazil, and rather than making you guys wait another two weeks till he gets back, I thought I'd do a, a solo show just to uh, to keep the ball rolling. And, and thankfully, actually, mine won't be the only voice you hear today. I'll tell you more about uh, what that will involve shortly. Uh, but if you are listening to the show for the first time, we're a podcast devoted to role-playing in the 41st millennium, using the gaming systems created by both Fantasy Flight Games and more recently by, by Ulysses North America. Um, we cover various parts about the game. We do reviews. We do character builds. Uh, right now, obviously, while the game's in flux due to the uh, impending release of Wrath and Glory, we're really just following the development of Wrath and Glory. Uh, and before we actually go into our, our regular show details, it's customary that we talk about our own sort of past time in gaming, which has been in the last month for us. Uh, so for Mike and I, it's really been our D&D campaign we're still playing in. Uh, that's been going along quite well. Uh, I did actually get to play some, some 40k war game for the first time in a while last weekend, and I actually can say I've now earned my beard because I have played Eldar for the first time. Uh, I started collecting Eldar um, just after, well actually just before 8th edition came out, when um, Shadow War Armageddon came out, and I had yet to actually play Eldar in 40k. Uh, so the other day, my friend Steve came over with his Thousand Sons, and I got to uh, to give the Eldar a spin for the first time. And I will say I did win 23 points to 10, uh, but that was really because I'm a little bit better about chasing objectives than than Steve is. Uh, Steve is more of a, um, uh, I'm on the board to kill all your guys sort of thing, So whereas I run around chasing all the, the game objectives to get points. But no, we both had a good time, which, which was good. Uh, and also I can say that uh, I managed to ingratiate my way into a new campaign. Uh, actually, this weekend coming... I'll be going to a friend's house to do character creation for uh, Nemesis, which is, uh, if you're not familiar with it, it's uh, a game system that is, I think, derived somewhat from the Call of Cthulhu setting, uh, but one of the developers is uh, Greg Stoltz from, or Greg Stolze, sorry, from uh, Vandonami's fame, which is another game I really quite like, and I understand this game incorporates elements of Unknown Armies I really, really like, like the Madness system really one of the best psychological management systems I've seen in, in a role-playing game. Uh, and so I'm looking forward to, to playing Nemesis. I know it's going to be a game set 
in the 90s, uh, which of course is something I'm, I'm well familiar with, having grown up in the 90s as well. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to, to playing that. Uh, but on today's episode, uh, I will do a news section because there's a bit of news about Wrath and Glory and some other news items regarding Games Workshop and uh, even a little bit from Cubicle 7. Uh, and then we've actually got an interview. So Ross Watson is back on the show, ready to talk about uh, Wrath and Glory. I'm not going to say it was an AMA. Certainly Ross has uh, dropped some interesting tidbits on us. There's still some you know, information control going into the game's launch, but Ross has been really kind to give us some interesting new points. And if uh, if you haven't heard them, well, I, I imagine that if you're hearing this show for the first time without reading any show notes, some of those reveals might be the first time heard as well, So, which is pretty cool. Um, and then we'll do our regular community section and close out the show. So let me get straight into the news and we'll get on with the interview after that. Command acknowledged accessing Imperial Archives. Obviously, with a bit of a break between shows, there's been quite a bit of news to cover. Uh, so I'll start off on what we've seen coming out of Ulysses North America. And we saw a February designer diary uh, where Ross spoke about this uh, concept called Ascension, which is more of a... So rather than Ascension in Dark Heresy, which was a way of developing higher power characters at the later end of your campaign, this is more about, from what I understand, bringing... Uh, character creation characters up to the same tier as their compatriots. So we've known for a long while that Wrath and Glory is going to be designed around allowing you to play multiple different aspects of the 40 universe. Everything from a basic hive ganger up to a Primera Space Marine. Uh, but because that instantly presents a, a balance issue. Uh, and so what they've basically developed here from this Sina Diary is a system that allows you to take a lower tiered character and we spoke about tiers back in episode 91, and effectively advance them up to the point that they are now the same as a, a higher-tiered character. Uh, so in the example they've used, they want to have a lower-tier character like a Guardsman play in a higher-tiered game, like a Tier 3 game, where you might have Space Marines, Commissars, whatever, whatever the case may be. Uh, and so in doing this, it's not just a case of giving that character more points, because uh, we can glean from what we've seen so far of the rule system that it's some sort of point by system to build a character uh, it so rather than just giving them more points they are a better guardsman you know it actually involves things like giving them potentially better gear uh, because you can assume that if the gear is somehow tied to what the character base type is then that's going to mean that a guardsman walks in with a las gun as opposed to a spray, space marine with a bolt gun uh, and so maybe there is a mechanic there as part of ascension to bring up that gear component uh, and it's also designed to give additional story to the character so it's not just a case of saying that hey i'm a better guardsman than that guardsman it's more a case of i'm a grizzled veteran of multiple wars and that's why it makes sense i'm now walking along beside a space marine scout or whatever the case may be uh in the, the context of this uh, adventure uh now we also saw some more character artwork coming through via both the twitter page and the ulysses north america facebook page so we saw uh, our first Eldar picture, which looks like a Warlock, potentially. Uh, we had the Acolyte. We had an Eldar Corsair. We had a Tactical Space Marine, a White Scar in this case. We had an Orc Commando. We had an Eldar Ranger. And finally, we had a Tech Priest. So I think it's really interesting that they've got all these different character artworks. So at first, I was thinking maybe these are character art they're using for entries in 
like a monster entry or an antagonist entry sort of thing, or maybe these are some of these are NPCs that will appear in sample adventures. But uh, I think you'll find when we when we talk to Ross about this in a bit as well, you'll actually hear that um, it looks like these are all potentially examples of character creation options. Uh, and we've already seen well over a dozen so far. But uh, I, I don't want to spoil things for, for the interview with Ross, but uh, let, let's come back to that a bit later. Uh, we also saw in the last month the second part of the Eagle Ordinary uh, comic, which gives us an idea about how the uh, the rules are going to work in the game. Uh, so in this case, we saw the completion of the, the Tech Priest task in the first section to open a door, um, where we can actually see that shifted successes above and beyond what you needed can be used for things like additional information. So in this case, uh, identifying that the door had previously been hacked by somebody else, uh, which is a pretty cool way of, of doing, I guess, narrative resolution beyond just pass or fail. Uh, we also saw in this rule set the first example of combat in the game. Uh, we only, t- only saw a single combat action, but what we did learn was that uh, initiative is based upon a back and forth between the players and the GM. So the players go first, player character goes first, then a GM, then a player character, then a GM, then a player character, back and forth until everybody in the round has acted. Uh, so I can see this being somewhat like the FFG Star Wars system where the players need to decide at the start of the round who is the most advantageous character of them to go first and by token who's going to go later on and who's going to go last in the character round because you're not going to get all the characters acting up front and then the, the GM characters or vice versa. So it does give you a tactical element when it comes to uh, who is going to act and when, which is pretty cool. Uh, we also saw the example of an attack. Uh, so it looks like there is some sort of defense statistic that you know, you're know you rolling to try and get a number of icons or successes equal to the opponent's defense. Uh, and that basically once you've got that, you've hit. Uh, when you hit, you deal the damage, which looks like weapons have a base damage number. So in this case, they had a last gun with a damage of seven. Uh, and it had plus one dice. So uh, the, you'd both take the seven, you roll a dice. It looks like the damage dice are not hard numbers, so you're not going to get, like, a with a last gun, a range of, of eight to 13. Uh, you're going to get a situation where um, the the additional damage dice is treated as successes as well. So a four and a five is plus one, a six is plus two, so therefore a last gun's going to give you a base damage range of seven to nine. Uh but then also we've got the fact that additional sixes that weren't required to make the hit roll can be shifted and become bonus dice on the damage. So really, I guess the sky's the limit in terms of how many dice you could actually get as bonus damage dice, which could quickly add up. And, and I, I guess it, in some ways, makes you think about the fact that in the current version of the war game, any weapon can wound anything. You know, if you roll well enough, if you roll lots of sixes, you know, you can put a hole in a titan with a las pistol. Now, it's got lots of wounds, so one wound isn't going to do very much, uh, but it is still possible to damage uh, even the hardiest things in the war game with the most basic of weapons as well, uh, which I guess here gives you the scope to have player characters, if they're very lucky, um, deal big damage. Uh, and part of that is represented by the fact that the example of play here shows that there is a resource in the game called Wrath, and, and, and Wrath, or Wrath, which one you like, uh, is a, I'm not sure whether it's a group resource or whether it's an individual resource, but it does say that Wrath Points can be spent to re-roll all failed dice in an attack roll. 
so I guess there's a situation where you know you've rolled, you, you've either not hit or you've hit, but not, you're not worried you're going to do enough damage. You could spend your wrath, re-roll or your failed dice, and hope you get more dice, especially sixes, which you can then shift over to create additional damage. Uh, I find it interesting that uh, so. I mean, this is just speculating here, but say I've got a dice pool of, I don't know, seven dice, and I need to get four successes to hit. Um, I could roll six fives, okay? So I've hit, um, but I haven't gotten any sixes to shift. So if I spend my wrath, do I only re-roll the one dice, or can I choose to re-roll some of those fives in the hope that I will then get sixes I can shift? It's an interesting sort of concept. I'm not sure where they'll go there, but it's certainly implied through the Eagle Ordinary comic that uh, you only re-roll failed dice. Uh, but we'll post a link to the the comic in, in its in its entirety uh, in our show notes as well. Uh, now we've also seen that there's been some big announcements about some stuff happening with uh, with Wrath and Glory. First off, we now know that there will be a free RPG Day module uh, as part of uh, RPG Day. If you're not familiar with it, is basically this concept where uh, different developers produce material, usually quick start rules, adventures, sometimes game aids. And they send those out to gaming stores for free, uh, and the gaming stores give them away on free RPG Day. Uh, so this is a pretty cool concept that sort of helps bring new RPGs out, that helps bring new players to the games. Uh, and there will be a Wrath and Glory component of free RPG Day, which takes place globally on Saturday, June 16. So a good opportunity for you to get to your local gaming store. You can't mail all of this sort of stuff. You can't get it from Amazon. It's really, you go to your local bricks and mortar store, and you can get into playing Wrath and Glory from as soon as June 16. Uh, now, they've also said that uh, at the Origins Game Fair in Columbus, Ohio, from June 13 to 17, there will be preview sessions of Wrath and Glory run at the convention. So if you are going to Origins, you know, look up Ross, and it'll say in the interview, there's plenty of other people will be there as well that are involved in the development of the game. You know, sit down, have a play of Wrath and Glory, you know, see what you think. Please also tell us about it, but I mean, we'll have more episodes between now and, and June 13 and 17, I promise you. But certainly uh, keep in mind that uh, that'll be an opportunity to actually play the game. And there has actually been a, a recent announcement on their uh, their Facebook page that there will be some preview happening uh, in early May of, of Wrath and Glory. So we don't know more than that, simply just that there's a, a date in May. Uh, we'll link to that Facebook page once again in the show notes, but it looks like there is going to be some event happening in, in May regarding a preview of Wrath and Glory. So let's wait and see. So a lot of news on, on Wrath and Glory. Uh, covering off the other, uh, I guess, Games Workshop elements, first off, Cubicle 7. Uh, we've seen now that they've put up the third part of the Enemy Within campaign onto Drive-Thru RPG. If you're not familiar, Enemy Within was sort of a, a multi-part module that came out with the very first version of Warhammer Fantasy, a very popular module as well. Uh, so I, myself, have started playing it like three times, but never gotten past really the first couple of scenes. It's just the games have unfortunately died because of commitment or whatever the, else the case may be. But uh, yeah, certainly if you're a Warhammer Fantasy roleplay fan, uh, it's certainly, a, a, I want to understand, a very worthwhile module to play. I know lots of GMs that have played it and say, you know, I, I really want to run this module. It's a very fun module. Uh, so now all three parts are available on Drive-Thru RPG. So far, still... No further word on Age of Sigmar role-playing, but we will continue to monitor it you know, with a bit of interest as well. On the Games Workshop side directly, from the 40k element, we've seen the announcement in the last week or so of the upcoming release of Forgebane. So Forgebane is pretty much this year's 
40k box set. Uh, and I think that it's interesting from the point of view that the army choices in it are Adeptus Mechanicus and Necrons. So certainly not two of the more common ones. I mean, the majority of these box sets in the past have used Space Marines as at least one side. Uh, and so there's no Space Marines in this at all. Um, also the fact that it looks like in the uh, in the Adeptus Mechanicus side, you get two of the new Armager Warglaive Knights, um, which are a variant, a smaller variant of the uh, of the Imperial Knight. From what I've seen from the rules they previewed on Battle of Lost Souls and I've seen on YouTube as well, they seem to fit a functional role in your army very similar to a Dreadnought. So they're quite mobile, they've got decent range, decent anti-tank power, uh, but interestingly enough, they are still a Lord of War choice, so they're um, still considered to be a super heavy. So I'd be interested to see, uh, yeah, how how the general market reacts to those. That they sort of we've known they were coming for a while. They were previewed in in early material from Games Workshop, but uh, yeah, now that the first time they've actually been seen is in this in this box set. So uh, look, I don't play Adeptus Mechanicus, and I don't play Necrons, but I have pre-ordered this box because, generally speaking. 40k uh, box sets you get so much for your money in terms of the number of miniatures and the types of miniatures for the dollars you spend so uh, I, I imagine those those Necrons and and, um, and I, look, I do have one Imperial Knight as well but the, I think the others will all go on to my shelf as allies slash enemies for friends to use when they come around to try out 40k for the first time because I'm really getting a lot more into 40k now I've sort of semi-converted my garage into a bit of a uh, a bit of a gaming den for for 40k at the moment as well, which has been pretty cool. Uh, the other thing I'm going to note about Forgebane is that from what little we know so far of the, the story of the uh, the box set, uh, GW have t- brought back Blackstone as a sort of MacGuffin. So Blackstone we first saw, I think we first saw with Blackstone Fortresses during the Armageddon campaign in in Battlefleet Gothic, uh, where you had these giant sort of Xenos uh, space station-like things with incredible power that Abaddon gained control of, and there are still some left in the in the universe as well. We then saw during the fall of Cadia in the uh, uh, the Gathering Storm series that there were these Blackstone megaliths on Cadia that were somehow involved in how the planet was able to survive on the edge of the Eye of Terror for so long. Uh, so there's the implication that Blackstone can either be tuned to repel the warp or can be tuned to enhance the warp. Uh, and apparently this um, Forge Bane box includes this sort of component of the Necrons seeking to gain control of some Blackstone with the uh, with the Imperial... Uh, with the uh, Adeptus Ministorum, Ministorum, Adeptus Mechanicus trying to stop them. So it, it almost feels like uh, Blackstone's become a bit of a MacGuffin recently in, in 40k. We'll watch to see how that, that develops and whether we see that in uh, in the RPGs as well. And, and in fact, I asked Ross to that point, which you'll hear in the, in the upcoming interview. Uh, and I guess the other thing is that uh, we do now know that Necrons will be the next codec release uh, sometime, I think, in the next week or so. So that's going to mean that we're going to see Dark Eldar with the, with the other announced codex probably sometime in April as well. So I'm actually looking forward to, to Dark Eldar. I think it's been a good long time since they got a, a decent codex. And uh, one of our sort of uh, the Thousand Suns player in our group has decided he also wants to collect um, Dark Eldar as well. So recently when we've been playing four-player games, it's been myself and another James with our Imperial Forces against Mike and this guy Steve with their, with their Chaos Forces. Maybe... You know, when we finish our current campaign set, we can do myself and Steve with our 
Eldar and Dark Eldar versus Mike and the other James with um, they really have no complementary forces but we'll figure something out because it's <laughs> James is all Imperium Mike is all Chaos Tyranids uh, yeah so and Jean's uh, well, still Tyranids same thing but uh, yeah no, no synergy there but we'll find a way to make it work uh, okay, so on to the computer gaming side, and uh, in the last month we saw the Steam Early Access launch of Betrayal at Kauf. Uh Now this is being toted as a VR turn-based strategy game, which is a really... You know, if you were to ask me, do those two things go together, I would say I, I really can't think of how it's going to work. Like VR, I really think of as a first-person point of view game, like a first-person shooter, or maybe like you know an investigation game. Whereas turn-based strategies tend to work from a top-down or isometric view of controlling forces in a larger-scale battlefield. Uh, so I did, I did purchase the early access release. I have installed it. Uh, I played through the first couple of missions unfortunately my pc hasn't handled it well so after the first mission it became pretty crash happy uh which you know at the end of the day with an early access you got to expect some some beta issues uh, i have in the last week actually re- fully replaced my home pc with a brand new pc so i'm hoping once i reinstall it i'll get a bit more luck with it um yeah, the, I mean, I don't have a VR headset, so I'm controlling it with a mouse uh, rather than using the, the headset. Uh, I can see how some of the transition scenes would benefit from VR because you are effectively looking from a character's eye view, but when it comes to the actual battle, uh, you, you're just moving your, vis- your scope of vision around the battlefield, so you're not portraying even anything like a servo skull. You're just uh, a single point of view over the battlefield. Uh, we also saw the announcement in the last week of uh, a new game from Bullock Studios called Mechanicus, uh, which will be a turn-based tactical game as well, uh, in development for a 2018 launch. So far, no gameplay footage, just uh, just some, um, I guess, cutscene or, or, or teaser footage, but uh, we'll also track that one too. And I've also been watching, very interestingly, the uh, the development of the Necromunda uh, computer game that's, been, that's underway as well. I, I noticed when I was in my local Games Workshop store recently that they had all the Necromunda stuff moved to a uh, a shelf that was all you know these items uh, will be online only from from next week basically. So they're taking Necromunda out of the stores, which is interesting because I I I'd sort of gotten the impression that Necromunda had been well received. I, I know there's certainly some people had some issues with some of the rules and they've recently factored as well. Uh, but I certainly felt that there was a, a strong following behind Necromunda uh, since its recent relaunch as well. So, I mean, that being said, they're not removing support for it. They're just moving the stock to be a, an online-only thing, at least in Australia. That might be a, a different thing in other parts of the world as well. Um, so, yeah, anyway, that's the news. Uh, so let's move on to the next part of the show. Knowledge is power. Hide it well. So, as promised, uh, we were able to get in contact with, with Ross uh, during the last month. And, and actually, I want to say as well that we really appreciate the fact that Ross actually reached out to us. Uh, Ross said he had some you know, information that you know, he wanted to, to get together and chat about the game as we get towards launch. Uh, and so, yeah, we, we made the time. Unfortunately, once again, it was after Mike had already left for Brazil. Uh, but yeah, Ross was able to give us some, some good answers. We ran the questions by him first, and I think there was something there that was really... Uh, confrontational, so we were able to ask all the questions we wanted, uh, and in fact, Ross dumped some really interesting tidbits on us that you'll hear any of you coming up. So, without further ado, let's jump into uh, our recent catch-up with Ross Watson. Signal accepted. Beginning decryption sequence. 
So, Ross, welcome back to the show. I'm actually not going to do the whole sort of, you know, introduce something. You're pretty much like our third host these days. <laughs> it's great to be back on the Grim Dark podcast. Uh, I'm so excited you guys are, are. Have you already hit your 100th episode, or is this going to be really close to the 100th episode? No, this is like, uh, I'm just remember how to record it now. It's like 93 or 94, I think. So. Oh, right up, right up there. Okay, so this is, we're on the cusp of something amazing. That's it. Yeah, we've been really stuck about recording lately because uh, Mike's in Brazil and I've been traveling, but uh, I'm glad we managed to find the time to catch up again. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, first off, how have you been? What's new in your world? Well, I'm uh, I'm now back in the United States after my whirlwind tour of Europe, uh, living in Germany, working on uh, the game Wrath and Glory with Ulysses Spiel, uh, which was pretty great. I actually got a chance to meet you and hang out in person in Idstein, Germany, where we got to play the game, and uh, that was pretty exciting. But now, yeah, I'm uh, I'm back in the U.S. with uh, my close friends and gamer buddies, and we are. Uh, we are playing quite a bit of different games right now, which is uh, exciting and cool. So I'm, I'm in a good place. Okay. Can you tell us what you're gaming? We, we always, in our show, talk about what we've been gaming on in the past fortnight or so, but anything you're, you're playing a lot of? I mean, Wrath and Glory, I assume. Well, definitely, because the playtests uh, go on and on. But um, D&D 5th Edition is also something I'm uh, really into at the moment. Uh, so I'm running a game of that as well. And there is a game uh, a friend of mine put together that's basically... Uh, it's basically G.I. Joe. Okay, red lasers and blue lasers. And it's called Freedom Squadron. It's based on a board game called Venom Assault, which is very much, uh, you know, uh, fighting for freedom wherever there's trouble. <laughs> and and it's, uh, it's, it's pretty great. They're doing a Kickstarter for it right now, as a matter of fact. Uh, Freedom Squadron um, on Kickstarter, if you want to check it out. Uh, using the Savage Worlds rule set, uh, which is really uh, a, another of my old favorites that I really enjoy. Okay, I'll make sure we post a, a link in the show notes as well, then. Great. All right, so let's um, jump on to Wrath and Glory, because uh, that's obviously that's the big thing we want to cover here. So I think we've seen a few key announcements in the past uh, few few weeks and months, I think. First off, that we know that um, there's going to be a, a participation in Free RPG Day at this point in time. That's correct. And that there'll be an opportunity for people that attend the Origins Game Fair to actually uh, yes. have a preview sort of playing of it. That's going to be that's going to be the first time we're going to be playing the game like publicly and and running the game with uh, with fans. You know, is uh, Origins. So if you can make it to Origins, you'll not only get a chance to play the game, you'll get a chance to play it with some of the designers and writers. I know I'll be there. Wendy Reichel is one of my writers. Uh, Stephen Rhodes, who wrote a lot of the rules, is going to be there. So uh, this would be a great chance if you're planning to attend Origins. This is your a, a really good time to get some hands on with the full game, not just the quick start, because, you know, Free RPG Day, we, we, we're doing a quick start for that, uh, but I mean, we're, we're doing the full game, the full thing at, uh, at Origins. I've got to say, it's been amazing that, you know, if, if it looks like, I mean, this was announced, what, at, at Gen Con last year for the, for the most part. Correct. And, and we're, you know, coming up on, on Gen Con for this year, and it sounds like you've made so much progress. Well, we've made uh, we've made a lot of progress. I mean, it's it's been a game that's been in development for a while, and uh, game development is an interesting thing. I mean, I've done it for a long time, and every every project's got its own you know foibles, its own sort of um, uh, quirks, and. Uh, Wrath of the Glory has been one of those that's kind of advanced in, in oddly enough, sort of fits and starts. Like, we'll get this cool idea, and we'll suddenly, oh, okay, and we and we, we move forward, and then for a while, we're sort of like, uh, uh, we're sort of like delving into the details of, of other things, and, and uh, it just, it, it continues on for a little while, and then we'll do another start, and we'll be like, oh, 
you know, big creative idea, blah, and then we'll push forward on that too. So it's it's been interesting to work on this uh, in terms of the progress because it's just sometimes it feels like uh, it's it's like an EKG meter. It's like these big spikes, right? <laughs> Yeah, I'm not going to name names, but uh, I I kickstarted a, a second edition p- project a while ago for another game system. Like I'm going to say a while ago, like three and a half years ago now, and wow. they, they've just gotten the first manuscript out with no art. Wow! So uh, I mean, y- your pace by by comparison is cracking. So, well, thank you. Uh, we have a great, we have a really great team. I mean, I couldn't have done it without all of my my writers and excellent playtesters. I have a small army of playtesters that are doing uh, some some really great work. Um, so it's not just me, but I do appreciate the on, on behalf of me and my team. I do appreciate the uh, the sentiment. Awesome. So let's uh, get into into the game itself. So first, off, I want to say that uh, I saw a recent conversation on Facebook that you participated in on the Wrath and Glory website, um, mm-hmm. where, where a couple of uh, I guess fans had expressed their concerns about the change from the percentile system uh, from mm-hmm. the, uh, going back to the earliest fantasy RPG. Uh, and I, I want to say as well, I think it was a really mature conversation, despite the fact that it was, you know, it was it's based upon a complaint. I think that everybody, yourself included, handled it really, really, in a really adult way anyway. Shocking um, on the internet, right? Yeah, exactly. I, I read the comments and I was not, I was not shocked and appalled. So, uh, <laughs> but I mean, can, can you tell us anything more about the decision to move from a, uh, a percentile-based system through the you know the D6 diceable system we've seen recently in Eagle Ordinary. Yeah, so when I got the the job to write the system for Wrath and Glory, one of the things that I knew we needed to change was um, when I had been working on the 40k roleplay line at Fantasy Flight, I always felt like it was a real struggle to scale things with percentile dice. And 40k is a game that has a lot of scale. It goes, you know, from uh, a Garzan with a lasgun and a bayonet all the way up to, you know, Titans uh, blasting each other with blast guns uh, to, you know, the mile-long ships in space. And percentile was was uh, we did a lot with it, and it's it's not a terrible system by any means. But I felt like we'd certainly pushed as far as we could go. Um, at least as far as I, I know I could go in terms of design with a percentile system. And I, I felt like a D6 dice pool was really uh, going to be a way that we could use to uh, emulate a lot of different scales in 40K. We could have a game like Dark Heresy. We could have a game like Death Watch. We could have a game where we have multiple characters of different levels working together. And I think that's where I started to... Uh, I would made my decision at that point. I was like, we need to do something else. And uh, the D6 dice pool was really growing on me from... Well, I, I have played a ton of games that use D6 dice pools, and I really enjoyed almost all of them. So it's, it's something that really spoke to me as a designer creatively. Okay, then. And I, I mean, I said it before in the show as well. I think that uh, for people who are fans of the 40K war game, there's something feels natural about a handful of D6s. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, all right, so also on YouTube recently, the interview that you guys did in Itstein, um, where you're talking a bit more about Wrath and Glory, one of the things that was mentioned there was the fact that some other producers are doing a lot of narrative game-based systems. So, you know, I'll point to, for example, the, you know, the colored die system in Star Wars and that um, I think that you expressed in the interview that you're more of a traditionalist when it comes to game systems but when we look at the system that was shown in, in Eagle Ordinary with the with icons and exalted icons and the way that they're interpreted there is 
uh, I mean, more scope in this game system than just pass and fail. You know, you seem to have a couple of different axes of, of interpretation. So w what was the challenge in sort of creating that sort of system from the ground up? I mean, was it something that took you outside of your own comfort zone or...? No, well, I mean, that's the funny thing is, like, when I was talking to Myrie and I said that I'm more of a traditionalist, I mean, I, I guess, you know, a lot of times I think of, um, I, I have friends who work in the the indie side, um, you know, I know uh, guys like John Wick um, and and um, uh, Mark Truman, Diaz, and so there's guys out there who are, who are doing a lot of work, uh, and, and Lenny Balsera, of course, with, uh, with Fate, right? There's a lot of guys who are doing work out there with these uh, very uh, narrativist, rules-like games. Um, and you can't you can't be a designer in the RPG industry and, and not be aware of things um, like Fate, uh, Dungeon World, etc., that are doing um, a lot of narrative resolution. And the the thing is, those games are great. There's nothing wrong with them at all. Uh, but I, in terms of my own design approach, I feel like I'm more of, of a traditionalist. That's just where my brain goes. And I thought it was. Um, I, I just wanted to, to get that out there to people so that they kind of know a little more what to expect, because. Uh, you know, you could you could hear a lot of the things we were talking about and start thinking, oh, it's Dungeon World or oh, it's it's Fate, um, but that's not actually what it is. It's it's got a more traditional basis to it, and that's just kind of where I wanted to I wanted to make sure people's expectations were, didn't go in the wrong direction, which is why I said that. The challenge is, yeah, well, I mean. The, creating a system for the ground up has many challenges. You can ask any of the people I just mentioned, and they will tell you uh, plenty of stories about exactly what that's like. Um, do I, did I have to go outside my comfort zone? Um, not especially. Like a lot of the things that I that I, I, I added in Wrath and Glory, including the narrative resolution stuff, uh, the axes, uh, which is what I call it, um, the axes of results is not outside my comfort zone. It's something I've done a lot in my own personal, you know, gaming, even back in the, the 80s and 90s when we were, you know, playing D&D &D or Marvel superheroes, we were we were really, you know, working with sort of the proto elements of things like, you know, yes, but, or no, and, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, it, it's not necessarily outside my comfort zone, but it definitely is making me more aware of, of exactly what is my wheelhouse when it comes to design. Um, there's there's a different mindset you get into when you design a, game, a system from the ground up as, as opposed to one where you're iterating on one that has already come before, which is really what happened with um, the Fantasy Flight Games systems was we were iterating on the uh, the Black Industries Dark Heresy system. We really just took that as our foundation and built on it. And we did a lot of great work with that. Uh, but this is this is something a very different animal. This is um, this is building a, a brand new system that has DNA in it from, you know, many other games uh, that I'd love. And it's interesting to sort of watch how you, you, you know, your, your brain will uh, both analytically and intuitively, you know, uh, compare, synthesize, and uh, extrapolate, like, what those things do, where they come together. I know I'm using a lot of, you know, like, weird jargon to, to describe this, but, yeah, basically that's how, that's how my mind works when I start looking at uh, designing a new system. Okay, then. And, I mean, you're intimately familiar with the 40K setting. I mean, you've worked on the primary RPGs, you've worked on computer games, you've, you've worked for GW itself. Are, are there aspects of the the setting now that you found it hard to put into as, as a system or make work as a system? Well, I think one of the biggest challenges for 40K specifically is, like, the idea of, of corruption and insanity um you know it's it's always been there but it's it's one of those things that's it's kind of subtle um i mean obviously when you talk about you know 
corruption. When you talk about corruption, you talk about chaos. Talk about mutants. Some, especially with Nurgle, it's not subtle at all. Okay, but in in the in the overall idea of you know the big picture, uh, it can be kind of a subtle idea and like how it is expressed in terms of um, you know mutation and insanity and the effects of of chaos on the material plane or the material world. Um, yeah, that that is something that is not always easy to grasp. I would say there's probably no easy way to uh, to take that concept and build it into a series of mechanics. So that is something that definitely we had some we we had to tackle uh, a couple of different times in a couple of different ways uh, until we got to something that we felt uh, was was uh, something that worked and something that felt right for the setting. So that that would definitely be uh, one part I think that was a a challenge. It's in terms always, of like the go ahead, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, you please. I was gonna say it's al- it's always hard to come up with systems that affect a character's mental state without necessarily taking away player agency. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, in terms of the new uh, Dark Imperium stuff, I mean that's really there wasn't that much of a challenge there. Really, the the challenge was making sure that we fit into what Games Workshop is is working on and what they have planned. Um, and just, uh, you know, so we have to remember that if you know, Wrath of Glory being set in the Dark Imperium does mean that um, warp travel is more dangerous. It's not it's not something you just casually do, right? And there's uh, a lot of... Uh, uh, there's difficulty in making astropathic communications and things like that. So there's there were some, uh, there were some differences in terms of the setting that we needed to, to make work, but that, that wasn't really a struggle per se. It was just sort of a, uh, something we had to keep in mind. Okay. So, I mean, you've, you've designed this game system now, and imagine that there's a GM or, or sort of players that are picking it up for the first time. Yeah. Is there a sort of a, a, a single piece of advice that you'd give people going into this game? <laughs> okay. Uh, well, if, they're, if they've never played Wrath and Glory before, I think that, you know, but they're, under, but they're familiar with, like, role-playing games in general. Um, then uh, I would say, you know, the, the, the one thing you need to keep in mind to help you get into it uh, is uh, four plus is good, sixes are the best. <laughs> and that's, that's really the simplest, uh, simplest thing to keep in mind is uh, when somebody's rolling their dice, right? Look, look for the fours, fours and fives, and sixes are even better than those. No worries. Uh, is there a particular part of the system that you've worked on that you're, you're proud of? That, that, well, I mean, uh, that you're particularly proud of, I should say, something that stands out <laughs> for you as, a, as an accomplishment? Um, something that I'm particularly proud of is, is the, um, the way that we've been able to balance groups of characters against each other. I think, I think Wrath and Glory's the thing that's going to make Wrath and Glory really stand out is that it is um, the first time you can just sit down and play 40K and say, what do you want to play? And, um, you know, there's going to be tons of options in that book. And you can put together a group that is uh, a Space Marine and a Guardsman and a Eldar Warlock, and they all can work together. Um, and that's, that, that's something that I've always thought... Um, that's always like an, an ideal that, that I, I worked for in the past, and now I feel like I've kind of realized it. And, and that's the thing I think I'm really proud of throughout the glory is that you, you can uh, just have a, a, a party of almost anything you want. And uh, I think that's, that's pretty great. Okay, so I mean, let's talk about the characters now. So, I mean, you've mentioned in the past, in past interviews, particularly at Gen Con last year, there's lots of aspects of the setting you'd love to incorporate. Every time someone said, will we have X? You'd always sort of said, look, it's very important to me. 
I'd love to see you there. You know. uh, and, and just recently, we saw on the on the Wrath and Glory Twitter feed and on Facebook all these fantastic character artworks from all different aspects of the mm-hmm. of the setting. Uh, I, I'm just curious whether, when it comes to actually building characters in Wrath and Glory, uh, players looking at building more of an ephemeral archetype, like you know, warrior or investigator, and then they just use their own narrative to connect them to those common you know imperial institutions or is it actually literally we're making you know here are the stats or rules for an imperial guard here are the rules or stats for you know an orc commando for example do you some of the pictures we saw well i think the answer is absolutely you are you are definitely making characters that are iconic to 40k okay um, you are making an imperial guardsman. You're not making a warrior. You are making an inquisitor and not an investigator. Okay, and I think that's important because you know, Wrath and Glory is a uh, game that's very much about an existing universe, and people come to play um, 40k role playing games because they want to have those touchstones that really bring them into that setting. Um, kind of like, I mean, I guess you know, the, the the example I would give is Star Wars. Like, you could make a character in Star Wars that was an archetype called the mercenary, but what you really want is a bounty hunter because that's an iconic Star Wars thing, right? And I think a, a better Star Wars game would be the one that says, no, you're playing a bounty hunter, and bounty hunters are different and special. So, so that would be that would be my approach to to Wrath and Glory is that we are we are not just giving you a, a sort of generic or broad um, um, idea of what you're playing. We're giving you a very specific, iconic, cool thing from 40k to play exactly that. Um, and we have, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to talk some some numbers. We have four different species and 32 different archetypes in the core rulebook with more coming on the way because uh, I'm actually uh, we're working on the the, the first big uh, campaign for later in this year um, already and we've already talked about like what what new species and archetypes are going to be in that book so yeah it's it's only going to grow but it's it starts at I, I think a fairly robust uh, position with uh, four species and 32 archetypes that's awesome I mean I, I was going to say that I wasn't sure whether the pictures that we were seeing were ideas oh, those... or character archetypes but, yeah, those um, are those are exactly things that you play. Okay, because I mean, I, I saw, for example, two different Eldar there. Uh, so it, it, it leads me to believe that it's not just there's one choice option, which is you're playing an Eldar, but there's like I think it was a Corsair and a and a Pathfinder, for example. We have well, we have three uh, three different pieces of art that have been released so far for Eldar. We have the Corsair, we have the Warlock, and we have the uh, Ranger. Oh, I've been missing my Twitter feed. I missed the Warlock picture. Oh, oh yeah, it's a great one. <laughs> Go back to that after this, after we uh, finish the interview. Um, all right, so you mentioned you touched on it before, but uh, the tiers system. So you're actually looking at incorporating a system in that allows you to sort of have, mm-hmm. I guess, what, a, what like a high power character with a low power character and still make the game playable. Like, is it is it a balancing mechanic? Is it uh, just a way of allowing them to have that in the system? Or uh, I mean, is, what's the intent, design intent behind the tiers? So primarily, it's a balancing mechanic and a way for you to decide what kind of game you want to play. So, so from the very beginning, Wrath and Glory was supposed to be a game that allowed you to, to have very different types of experiences um, in the setting, right? Like if you want, if you wanted to play uh, kind of a dark heresy game, you could do that. That's something that we wanted Wrath and Glory to do. If you wanted to play 
you know, a Death Watch game or a Rogue Trader game. Um, in Wrath and Glory, that's something that the game should let you, should let you do. And the uh, the way we, we managed to do this is we decided to say that you one of the first steps you do is you create what's called your framework. Okay, and the framework is you saying this is what my game is about. My game is about you're all playing Imperial Guardsmen as part of the same platoon, and you're behind enemy lines, and you're trying to get back to uh, you know a civilized uh, or or back to a uh, a drop point. Okay, and that could be a whole campaign. And so you would say, okay, that's going to be a tier. Uh, you could make that a tier two or a tier three game. You, you could go tier four or higher if you really wanted to, but I, w- I would recommend something like a tier two or tier three game. Okay. And what that would mean is that archetypes that are higher than tier three would not be appropriate. Okay. Um, so if someone said, I want to play Primaris Space Marine, well, that's a tier four. You know, a Primaris Intercessor is a tier four character, an Inquisitor is a tier four character. They just would not be appropriate for that game. Um, and it also says to you, okay, so I want to play a guardsman, and, and I mean, let's for the sake of argument, let's let's de- decide that it's tier three instead of tier two, um, which means you can play a commissar and all that, all those other really, you know, it gives you a lot of of, of options. And uh, let's say that Mike, you know, your co-host decides he wants to play a Tempestus Skyon. Okay, that's a tier two character. Now, a tier two character in a tier three game, he's actually going to be uh, built on less points. Uh, than a tier three character, he's going to have less skills, less attributes, that kind of a thing, um, and that's why we have this idea behind the tiers because now you can take that tier two character, and we have a system in place called ascending, where he will then become a tier three character to start with play at the same you know same starting point as everybody else, uh, but he will have he will get all the resources he needs to build himself up to that level in terms of his uh, his abilities, his skills, his um, attributes, and even he'll get some some gear uh, that will put him on a, a, high, a slightly better playing field. Um, he'll get uh, you know either some corruption points or a memorable injury to sort of explain what he's been doing. Um, he'll get a new keyword. He'll get uh, a bonus influence. That means that he has uh, got a little more authority and a little more... Uh, 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 a little, yeah, basically a little more authority than your standard uh, Tempestus Skyon, and then he'll feel like he fits into that Tier 3 game right next to um, a, a Space Marine. Now, the Space Marine, of course, you know, they're, they're going to be their own special thing, and Space Marines are probably going to be, uh, are, are almost guaranteed to be stronger and tougher and, uh, you know, better a better fighter than his Tempestus Skyon. Uh, but his Tempestus Skyon is a man to be reckoned with because he has those things that we just talked about. He's got the influence, and he's got the keyword. Uh, he, he gets a bonus keyword um, for ascending. He's going to have, you know, pretty sweet gear, and he's going to have his own special ability uh, that a Tempestus Skyon, that only a Tempestus Skyon gets. So there, you know, that's what tiers allow us to do is to have uh, a cool mixed group. Now, okay, I guess uh, I just screwed up because a, a space marine would not be appropriate to a framework about guardsmen, would it? So you, you as the game master, if you, if if you James were running the game for us, you would say, eh, this is really the framework doesn't really fit space marine. So you could pick another tier three character if you want, right? Or or take a tier one or a tier two and send them up. Uh, but the point is, is that's how they would that's how they would stand next to each other and and work together in that tier, even though the archetypes are from a lower tier and could come up. And uh, it just you know, as a game master, tiers give you an idea of like what kind of game, how dangerous things are. We have um, we have tier notes on all of our our bestiary entries. Okay, so you have a you have an idea of like whether uh, if a tier if a tier two group runs into a bloodletter, they're in trouble. 
Okay, they're in serious trouble. If a tier uh, tier three group runs into a blood letter, uh, it's still a dangerous encounter, but it's certainly not going to be uh, something that they have to uh, freak out about. They're not going to panic uh, because tier three characters are just they're more competent, they're more able to handle that kind of a threat. Tier so the tier system is is not only a way to um, help balance characters' different power levels. It's also a way that tells you what kind of uh, threats and things are appropriate. And it also, uh, it actually interfaces right with the, uh, the dice system as well, because we put a limit on the number of dice uh, you can roll uh, based on tier. Because what we don't want is we don't want people just having huge handfuls of dice. Listen, I love Shadowrun, right? I love Shadowrun. It's a great game. Um, but I can also make a starting character with like 26 dice in that game. And that's a, that's a big dice pool, right? Uh, tiers let us uh, kind of... Uh, put some boundaries on that and say, you know, in a tier two game, you're probably not going to be rolling more than, say, 14, 16 dice. Um, and that's with every single benefit or bonus you could possibly get, right? Um, I think that's probably even high. I don't have the number in front of me. But, I, you know, the, the point is that the tier, the tier puts a limit on that dice. Um, and so a higher tier game, like if you play tier five, you're going to feel more powerful partially because you can throw around more dice at problems. So anyway, it's yeah, it, it tears work in, in many different aspects of the game. I hope okay. that was a good answer. Yeah, that's a, that's a good answer, definitely. Um, so I guess the question is, I'm you know sitting down for the first time as a as a GM or as a player, you know, and we want to do character creation. Am I am I booking out an entire day just to try and you know book dive and that sort of thing, or or is it a game system where I can literally create a character and sort of be playing in the same afternoon? Put it. That is that is definitely what you uh, what you can do is you can put a character together and play right away. We are uh, one of the things I'm working on, of course, is a beginner's box, which is you know I'm already thinking about ways to streamline um, how someone can uh, get a character together and start playing. Um, one of the things we've got right there in the book is we've got some starting uh, skill and attribute um, uh, arrays that you basically can say I I could you know spend and account for every single one of my uh, skills and you can customize as much as you want or we have some some quick start here's how you get right in the game you pick a species pick an archetype you, you uh, we give you a, a starting set of uh, attributes and a starting set of skills for your tier um, your war gear is already baked into the uh, to the archetype um, you would need to just basically pick a background and grab a trinket and go okay. So yeah, we keep keeping that number, you know, keeping that uh, number of decisions down is important. Here's the thing, like I, again, I come from a lot of game systems um, that have a lot of really in-depth character generations. Shadowrun uh, was was a big influence on me. Uh, Champions, which you know, you 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 basically designed all of your own abilities in that game uh, and gave them a, a points cost. Uh, and so you know, I, I come from a background of that where uh, that was kind of the norm, and and I try not to. Uh, Wrath of Glory is, is, is the kind of game where we want you to be able to build the character you want, but it's not going to take you off or anything. You should just be able to go, okay, I make these decisions, and now I'm playing. So i got to ask a quick side question here. This is as a personal question since uh, this is not Wrath of Glory related, but you did mention champions there. And yes. I'm, I'm a big, I, I was a big champions player back in the day. Oh, my God. I know you were too. And i got to say, I had never built a character in champions without... Like the program, like when the first edition of Champions, I got the blue book that came with a with a floppy disk with it with the uh, with the yeah. program. Have you fourth ever edition, sat, the big blue book? Yeah, have you ever sat down and created the Champions character with just a pencil and a calculator? Yes, many times, <laughs> many times. Have you tried it without a calculator? 
Uh, yes, but it's it's more difficult. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely, I, I know where you're coming from on that, and that's that's partially why I brought it up is like you know the uh, not the nightmare scenario, but I think I think what people don't want is they don't want to do tons of bookkeeping and they don't want to make a character uh, you know be like a, a session of math class. Um, the, the character creation systems that I love the most are, are ones that are reasonably quick but offer plenty of customization. You you get to choose you know what what kind of character you want to make through some uh, through a series of decisions that are not overly long or burdensome, and that's what uh, Wrath and Glory aims to do. Okay, uh, and I got to ask this for my own group's benefit because they love it. You know, are we going to see some random tables? They love random tables. Yes, yes, yeah. Well, um, definitely, we're going to see some random tables. I, I also am a big fan of those. Um, and, and and one of the things that I think is probably the best is we have a really cool, robust system of uh, trinkets. Some really cool little uh, little items that you get at character generation that give you uh, just a little extra piece of, of history. Um, uh, one of my favorites is uh, you know there's a uh, it, basically it's it just says it's a message to a loved one that was never delivered, and you know. When you roll that on the on the chart, you might be like, "Oh, okay, I'm I'm carrying a, a letter," or you might say, "I'm carrying a data slate," or a you know whatever whatever form that message takes. But it it does cause you to think just a little bit more about your character, like, "Why was it never delivered? And who is it for? And who was and who wrote it?" You know, just it just gives you a little bit extra uh, oomph for you know that character story, and that's that's entirely from a random die roll. Um, we have built in uh, some random die rolls into other things as well. Um, if you want to, uh, if you want to, if you want a quick start, for example, you know, make your character fast. You, one of the background, uh, all of the background options, except for I think keyword. Um, all the background options have a random table you can just roll on to see. Like, uh, okay, so I'm choosing the. Uh, I'm choosing the the achievement pack uh, background, so that means you know I I was part of some big event. Which event was I part of? And you roll a d6 and you you find something cool that you can put on your character sheet. Uh, so yeah, we we have uh, plenty of those as well. Awesome. Random tables. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about the the system itself for a bit. So um, right. you mentioned earlier that you're really wanted to sort of capture the brutal side of 40k, and of course you know it is a setting where there is only war, uh, <laughs> but also I mean. I mean, look, every single role-playing system is going to have a combat resolution mechanic. Um, right. But I, I'm interested to see, have you gone for resolution mechanics that are for out-of-combat things, like whether it's investigation or, you know, influencing people's motives, you know, are there going to be sort of, I guess, narrative systems that players can sink their teeth into along with the combat systems? Yeah, absolutely, of course. Um, I think... Uh, there's been a lot of really cool innovations in this in the uh, the industry over the last several years about these exact things, and I've taken inspiration from some of them. Uh, we have um, a, what I think is a, a pretty great investigation system that was designed by a friend of mine, uh, Daryl Hardy. Um, sorry, uh, Daryl Hayhurst. Uh, sorry, <laughs> whoops, sorry, Daryl. Wrong Daryl. Daryl Hayhurst, uh, who is the uh, um, current uh, lead developer for Torque Eternity. And his investigation uh, system is, is pretty cool. We've got that in the book. We've uh, we've got some rules on on how to influence people and use your. Um, I mentioned this before, but there's a there's actually a stat called influence that you you can use to uh, assert your authority and buy items and things like that. Um, definitely, there's definitely some narrative systems in there that I think people will enjoy. Okay, and, and not just part, not I, just brutal combat. Yeah. <laughs> so so on that items point, I mean. War gear is a, a huge part of the 40k setting, uh, and it was. Uh, we always found going back to the original gaming systems that there was. Sometimes war gear could be what made or broke 
broke your character with whether you could or couldn't do something. I'm just wondering how important is gear in, in Wrath and Glory? And are we actually going to see things like you know, individual different, you know, like are we going to see different stats for a Sir Kristen Patton bolt pistol versus a Goblin Diaz? Or, you know, are we, are we tracking <laughs> bullets on our character sheet or is it more of a, an abstraction in some way or something more narrative for the, for the gear? Well, gear's gear's pretty important um, in Wrath and Glory. I mean, in terms of the 40k setting, um, you can actually you know differentiate a lot of different things by their their war gear, um, and and again, some of it's really iconic to the setting. I mean, a bolt gun is a very 40k thing. Um, now that being said, I think in the core rulebook, I can say with authority that we are we are aiming for kind of the the uh, the, the, the the iconic concept of the weapon without getting into details like the uh, the individual pattern. Okay, so in the core book we have a bolt gun, not a Godwin Diaz bolt gun. But I mean, you can say that. You can say it's a Godwin Diaz if you really like. It's no big deal. Um, and you know, in the future we may uh, we we've left room open to to do that in in future supplements if we want to get into uh, uh, a, a books. We, we're going to do a campaign all about the the Eldar specifically, and I'm sure that we will we will have some some individual you know things in that book that may. Uh, break down war gear a little more granularly, right? Um, in terms of things like uh, patterns and whatnot. But in, in, at least in the core book, no, we're we're focusing mostly on you know, is it a bolt gun versus is it a las gun? Okay. Uh, now, are we tracking bullets? No, we're not. We're not tracking bullets because that's bookkeeping, and I'm not really into that. <laughs> uh, Wrath of Glory is not a game where you need to you need to keep track of every single bullet you shot. Um, we have a, a cool mechanic. Uh, uh, it was inspired by uh, my friend Nathan Dowdell, over who works on a, a bunch of the 2D20 products. Um, it's uh, basically you really need to worry about your reloads, and uh, you you spend a reload when you do certain special things with your gun. But if you're if you just fire single shots out of the gun, um, you're probably going to do that just all day long, and you're not going to need to track bullets or anything crazy. Uh, and there's occasionally um, things that might come up in combat, like a complication that might uh, cause you to run out of ammo and you need to reload. Uh, but that's those are those are cool dramatic things those are not um, bookkeeping how many bullets do I have left in my clip things uh, so that I think hopefully answers your question there yeah definitely and I'm gonna I'm gonna throw something in for Mike's benefit because I know he'd say this if he was here but uh, yeah an idea he's pitched in the past when it comes to things like patterns is uh, uh, you have like a, a base template for you know like you say a bolter plasma pistol whatever and then you can have like uh, traits it's like you know this is the Mars pattern trait which you can throw over the top of that if you want to and say, I don't know, makes it one step harder to get, but gives it plus one damage, for example. But uh, so Oh, yeah. Yeah, my, my, yeah my, rather my, than make Mike's, a whole new entry. Yeah, Mike said that before, but uh, yeah, so you have that one for free. There you go. That's, that's from us to you. <laughs> <laughs> that, that may be the way we go in the future. I, I don't know for sure, but um, that's that's definitely a thank him for that because that's very cool. Thanks, Mike. That's a good idea. All right, so i got to ask a question. Um, are we going to see psychics? In the uh, in in the game, because I mean, we haven't really seen any examples of psychic so far, either in the character <laughs> artwork or in Eagle Ordinary. So, I mean, I, unless you include Eldar as sort of inherently psychic characters, so I mean, is there going to be a psychic system in the game? Yes, of course, there's going to be a psychic system in the game. You can't have 40k without talking about psychers because they are cool and they're. 
I, I recently actually read a, um, a playtest report that was talking about um, how we were handling this because we didn't want them to just be space wizards, right? They need to feel different. Psychic powers are dangerous. Um, they they don't just just happen and work. It's there's there's no such guy as say Gandalf in 40k, right? There's um, there's guys that you you are glad are on your side, but at the same time you don't want to stand too close to them. That's how a psyker works. And our system is uh, is designed to to replicate that feel. We are definitely going to have psychic characters, imperial psychers, rogue psychers. Uh, we have an Eldar warlock. I think I mentioned that. Um, and and in fact, um, just playing an Eldar character uh, gives you some uh, some connection to psychic abilities as well, because that's what they are. Though that's their that's their racial uh, thing, right? So yeah, psychic powers, uh, psychic mishaps. That's another great random table in the game <laughs> uh, for for uh, think bad things that can happen when when a psychic power goes awry. Uh, those are all things that are definitely a part of the uh, the wrath and glory experience. Okay. Um, now, also, you touched on before. You mentioned a bestiary. So, one thing that I sort of judge a lot of game systems by is I remember back to the old days of second ed D and D, where you had the monster manuals and, and first, obviously, as well, where the monster entries were completely different from a player character. It's like it was a whole different system that reflected antagonists. Uh, and other game systems, you know, like going to new editions of D and D, have literally monsters have the exact same stats as. As PCs, so mm. when it comes to antagonists in Wrath and Glory, you know, are they going to have the same attributes, skills, you know, wounds, whatever the case may be, or are they going to be more of an abstraction that is a mechanic that <laughs> you roll against as such? Well, okay, so that's that's an interesting point. Okay, so yes, individual bad guys um, definitely have a, uh, a a bestiary entry that is very very similar to player character. I mean, you're going to be able to say, you know. What's their strength? What's their agility? What's their intellect? Those things are all noted down. How many wounds do they have? What's their resilience? How damaging is their weapon? All those things are noted down. Um, I've always been a big believer that NPCs, though, um, have different rules than player characters. Now, that can that can mean just they have a special ability that player characters don't have access to. It can mean they just have wings or a dragon's breath in the case of something like D&D, right? Um, but it is, important, it is an important distinction to make sometimes because... Uh, you know, a, a creature a critter that runs around on all four legs. Um, you know, like a a fear cat or a uh, you know some 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 other like a like a Fenrisian wolf. Okay, let's say uh, those things are they're not human. They they move differently. So you know, when you talk about like their speed rates, you know, you you can't really say well they you know a human can't run that fast. Well, no, that's because they're not human. <laughs> uh, so having having said having made that one distinction of that they don't necessarily follow the same uh, they don't have all the same uh, rules as, as people they definitely very 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 similar, and we have a uh, something that um, we I kind of brought over from my work on Death Watch is the idea that you can have bad guys that are a big group of bad guys that are basically just act as a single entity. Uh, we have this idea in. Death Watch, we called them hordes. In Wrath of Glory, we're calling them mobs. And a mob is a group of, of faceless enemies, like a, a mob of orcs or a, a mob of cultists are a good way to think about it. Um, they they uh, so, so I can have uh, um, a group of ten cultists attack, and I don't have to make ten individual die rolls for those ten cultists to attack. I can make one die roll and add a bonus because there's ten of them. And that does really help out, I think, the GM, and it makes it easier, uh, even on the players sometimes, to feel like they're, uh, you know, in the 40k universe where, you know, Carnage and Woe are a big part of almost every battle. Um, 
you know, and and some of those those weapons, right? We talked about the war gear. Some of the some of the weapons, you know, kind of require like a battlefield type uh, feeling to them. You don't you don't just you know, a lasgun is a lasgun, but uh, if somebody you know whips out a, a uh, a vortex grenade you're like oh my god you, know, you kind of want to see that effect uh, on on more than just like an individual orc you know what i mean um which is why we have this uh this 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 idea of managing a a group of bad guys as a single entity um but if you but if you're fighting a guy with a name or or a a pretty important bad guy we call them elites or adversaries um, then they are definitely going to be much more just like, you know, uh, the, the rules are very much the same as, as what is the, the true for a player character. Okay, cool. So I want to touch now on the setting of Wrath and Glory. And um, obviously, you know, we've spoken about the fact that it's now post-Dark Imperium. You've written stuff for 40k both pre and post. Are there sort of, I guess, additional challenges from the theme of Dark Imperium, I mean, it's got sort of like the, the hope theme of Gullum's Return, but it's also got the the devastation feel of the, the expansion of the Eye of Terror. Is there anything about the setting that was different to work on when it came to Wrath and Glory? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we talked a little bit about this before. We talked about, like, say, the rules for warp travel. Uh, because things are more difficult and more dangerous in the Dark Imperium than they are in the Imperium Sanctus, which is what it's called, the other side, the the the, the normal Imperiums now, the Imperium Sanctus. So um, yeah, there's there's there are additional challenges. Um, you know, keeping that straight and and keeping the the idea of um, the threat that's arisen, because chaos can really just appear anywhere. I mean, um, now they are actually they've actually attacked Holy Terra during uh, the Gathering Storm trilogy when uh, when Guleman you know went to. Uh, Went to Terra with uh, with his crusade, so you know if if Terra is not safe, then nowhere safe, which is a kind of a big deal, and it's it's really interesting sort of writing from that standpoint in the Dark Imperium because you, your worlds and your systems there are are kind of cut off; they don't have the access to the Imperium's greatest strength, which is its inexhaustible resources. Um, so it does it changes the context about um, how. How dang, uh, how how under threat certain worlds are. Um, really, when when player characters are taking actions in the Dark Imperium, when you're playing your heroes in Wrath and Glory, you may be the only thing that planet has to defend to uh, to depend on, um, because there's there's no help coming, or or if it is, it's it's very difficult and very dangerous, and it's going to take a long time. So <laughs> that's that is something that has uh, has been an additional challenge, just just sort of you know recontextualizing what adventure means. Um, in 40k. Okay. Um, so we're going to see in Wrath and Glory like a, a canonical setting, like, you know, we had Clixus Sector in Dark Heresy and Cronus Expanse in Rogue Trader. These were sort of specific settings with their own, uh, I guess, politics and creatures, etc., created for the RPG. So are you looking to do that again in Wrath and Glory, or is it just pick your location anywhere in the, in, in the universe? Well, we have so so the the Wrath and Glory game is basically set in the Dark Imperium, which is a really broad area of space. But we also have um, a lot of information that we've we've put down about a very particular system because we wanted to get detailed. I mean, I, there are things that people absolutely loved about the Calixa sector, and they absolutely loved about the Cronus Expanse, and it was really fun to work on those things because it was able to uh, you were able to dig down and and really get into detail about. Um, you know what's life like there? What what is uh, what are the, the the threats and the conflicts and the characters? What's going on in those regions? 
And I've worked directly with a guy you may have heard of, uh, Aaron Dembski-Bowden. He has uh, built with us a place called the Gilead System, which we have uh, detailed a little bit. We've, we've kind of given you an overview of what the Gilead System is and how it works in the core rulebook. And we're going to be diving in headfirst, going really deep into it in our first uh, campaign um which is going to be a series of four books that we do later on in 2018. And I'm just kind of, we're, we're just starting to get that that rolling right now. It's really exciting to see all the cool things we're doing with the uh, the Gilead system as a place to adventure. So yes, we're going to have a canonical, canonical setting, but not just one. We're going to have we're going to have different ones because after the Imperium Nihilus, we're going to be doing uh, talking about stuff with the Eldar. And that, you know, we, we may use, a, we're probably going to use the Gilead system as a jumping off point for that, but it will be talking about um, and will be taking you to different places than just that system. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. And I was going to say, any, anybody who uh, is a fan of Black Library would be well familiar with Aaron's work, especially in the Horace Heresy novels. So, um, yeah, he's, he's one of the major contributors now to the, the 40K meta as such. So He's a really, really excellent writer, too. He's he got a good handle on it. And he loves, loves role-playing games, which is great for me. Awesome. So. <laughs> Um, so, are you, so does that mean you guys are going to have your own meta plot? You hope to sort of run forward, like you know, are we talking about as the different game books come out that there'd be a consistent sort of storyline going through, or is it really just this is the jumping off point and where you go from here <laughs> is up to the players? Well, I, I think meta plot's always a dangerous thing to talk about when you talk about role playing games because there's been good examples, there's been bad examples, um, and sometimes they've um, Sometimes they've they've been almost too influential. I like to I like to say that for Wrath and Glory, what we're what we're going to do is we're going to have we're going to focus on individual um, regions and sort of the story of that region. But it's going to be like the the important things that happen in those regions are going to be up to the player characters. So in terms of meta plot, there there is. Uh, Connections between things, but I wouldn't I wouldn't worry that you're going to get overshadowed by NPCs doing all the good, the cool stuff because they're not. And uh, again, I think you know what's what the uh, the the core idea with Wrath of Glory is that each campaign uh, is going to focus on its own individual like place and story uh, and, and what's going on there. So yes, there will be connected, but it won't be. Uh, it's it's not going to be uh, heavy handed or or arbitrary. I think I think you're going to be, I think player characters are going to be like, okay, cool, this is a thing that I can get into and make, uh, and and my choices matter, right? When it comes to the storyline of these individual uh, campaigns. Okay, I mean, I know that Games Workshop seems to be sort of getting a lot, a lot more involved in meta development uh, <laughs> at the moment as well, and. Uh, uh, I, I'm actually going to say in, in this same show that uh, I, th- I now see uh, Blackstone as, as, the new, as the new MacGuffin again. It's come back as a MacGuffin for yes, for GW. it's so cool. Um, do you, I mean, I don't know if you can say or not. Do you guys get to work in with GW on incorporating their developing Metaplot into the setting? Uh, yes. I mean, I, I, it's not something I get too into detail about, but I can tell you that I knew about Blackstone before you did. <laughs> for example, uh, so yeah. Um, it's it's definitely we are working with them about the stuff that's happening with their uh, their story and what they're what they're doing. Um, the 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 big deal with the Forge War and stuff like that. We're we're kind of up to date on that. Um, Games Workshop is definitely their um, their story and their their um, development of the narrative of the Dark Imperium is really really cool. Phil Kelly and his team are doing a great job over there, and uh, they are 
great about working with me when I have questions or you know, I, I can say like what is what what is the Imperium called when it's not the Dark Imperium and, and I get back and oh well that's called the Imperium Sanctus okay great you know they're they're very good about uh, helping us uh, stay in tune with what they have planned uh, because they're definitely driving the ship and they're doing a great job with it okay um have you had a chance, you know, with working with the Gilead system to sort of develop your own new, I guess, key antagonist groups and, you know, horrific Xenoforms that we can see <laughs> in, uh, in Wrath and Glory? Well, I think that's one of the best things about working on uh, the 40k role-playing games lines is that we get to add little pieces, uh, you know, to the universe um, in, in, the, in, our, in our own little sandbox areas. You know, we've, we've added uh, cool things um, that become... Uh, you know, part of that that story of the grim darkness of the far future, and we want to definitely keep going with that. I'm not going to go too into depth on that front, but we, you know, we are going to introduce um, you know cool stuff that is specific to our uh, sandboxes and specific to our uh, campaigns and stories that we're working on, um, and definitely you know in, introducing new things is is part of that because you you know it it can't always be the same old same old. Um, and we have some really kick-ass ideas that I, I wish I could tell you all all of my plans because some of the some of these ideas are just bursting to get out. But I I have to kind of hold on to them. So uh, re restrain your restrain your uh, interrogation uh, uh, servitor uh, just a little bit longer. <laughs> I'll, I'll put the excruciator away. <laughs> um, all right, so. I think we've covered off what, what I wanted to get through there. I mean, and we're pushing on towards um, an hour now. So I'll just ask, I'll ask you know, sort of few key questions. So um, if people, if they don't know already, if they want to follow the development of the game, um, see what's happening next, follow the release, where would they be going for information? UlyssesNorthAmerica.com is the best place to get that information. And we, we have Signer Diaries going out every month. Um, we have a, a Facebook group um, for we have a Wrath of Glory has its own Facebook group as well, so I would definitely go there. And we have a Twitter feed um, for Ulysses North America as well. Those would be the the three places that I would look. I if you want to follow me specifically, I'm at the Ross Watson on Twitter, and uh, I also have a Facebook page that you can follow. That probably you'll see a lot of Ulysses North America stuff gets shared there. Um, those would be your best bets to uh, find out what's going on. Yeah, Ulysses is definitely a company which does social media well. Yeah, we have our own YouTube channels and stuff too. So yeah, don't don't hesitate to check that out. Yeah, and Russell, I've got on good authority that uh, you're a big fan of conventions. So, yes, I am. Uh, is there anywhere that uh, fans can go in coming months to meet you? I mean, Origins, obviously, you mentioned before, but uh, anything else on your dance on your dance card? I'm very busy this year. I'm going to be at. Um, Origins and Gen Con, which are the probably two biggest ones. I'm going to be at a uh, local Colorado con called Starfest, and another local Colorado con called Cobold Con, and I am planning to be attending SpaCon in Hot Springs, Arkansas later on this year. Um, and I probably am forgetting a couple more than, oh, Chupacabra Con in Texas. I'll be there too. Um, gosh, I've gone to so many conventions this year. You going to cosplay any of them? Uh, no, God, I wish I. You know what? I want to. I really want to. I met this guy at uh, the Genghis Khan convention here recently, who does commissar costumes, and he does really well. And uh, uh, man, if if you can make a really great rogue trader coat for me, get in touch with with James. He'll pass on your information, and we can work out a, a, a price because I would love to. I would love to buy some somebody's 
work to wear a really cool Rogue Trader coat around uh, to these cons. So, yes, I would love to do it. <laughs> Just as a side note, have you encountered yet a US show called Cosplay Melee? No. Uh, I, I discovered this on planes recently. It was like on the on the entertainment system, but it's pretty much Project Runway for cosplayers. It's it's quite cool. hilarious. You should check it out if you get a chance. It's, it's quite. That cool. does sound pretty great. Um, all right, so one last question just for my own amusement. So, um, you know, ignoring whatever is or isn't in Wrath and Glory, what you hope to do in the future, you know, if you personally could play any character archetype <laughs> concept in the 40K universe, I don't care if it's, you know, from, you know, the lowest servant to the, you know, prime arc of the Imperium, you know, what would you most like to play? Yeah, okay, so that answer changes, you know, constantly based on, you know, things that I've read or, or what group I'm with, because certain groups do better with I, certain things. You must be a gamer. So, yes, I'm totally a gamer. <laughs> um, all right, so I'm going to game tonight with some of my best friends, um, and we we have a, a, a great old time, and, and they are all really excellent role players. And if I was going to play with them just anything at all, uh, the first thing that comes to my mind is I'd love to play uh, a Grot who's a member of the Revolution. And, and and do something with that. I think that'd be a lot of fun. Uh, but again, my answer would change depending on uh, you know a number of factors. All right, cool. Well, Ross, thank you once again for your time. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. And I think that you know we we know that uh, our fan base is really really um, keenly following this development. And uh, I feel like we're so we're so close now. You know, it's um I'm, I'm hoping the next time we chat will be you know around some sort of release. But, oh, that would be great. Yep. So, um, once again, thank you for your time. And, uh, you know, we look forward to chatting to you again in the future. Thank you, James. And thank you to your co-host, Mike, and all of your listeners who have made you almost 100 shows now. Uh, keep, keep, the, keep the faith, you guys. I, uh, having fans like you guys is one of the reasons why I do what I do. So, really appreciate it. Cheers. Signal lost. Decryption sequence terminated. So there you go. Uh, I think you know, it was a really great uh, time spent Ross. I really appreciate him taking the time. Uh, and I know it was on a, on a day he was going to do some gaming as well. So he had some time constraints. And uh, I really appreciate him taking the time. And look, yeah. So, I mean, the two big takeaways for me from that uh, from the interview really were the sheer number of options available for characters in, uh, in, in Wrath and Glory as well. In just the first book. You know, with more coming in, in subsequent material as well. So, I mean, I, I know that when, when this book gets launched, we're going to have a lot of material for future shows when it comes to character build options. If we can go through all those dozens upon dozens of different character archetype options, which is really great. Uh, and the other bit of news, I guess, that I really picked up on was the fact that uh, we knew that there was a, a a new, an extra book coming out called Imperium Nihilus that was sort of, the I guess, the setting book, their first setting book for the for the system and uh but we hadn't yet sort of heard any context about when that was due uh and so and ross did mention obviously in the in the interview there that it was a later on this year type launch as well so we won't have to wait too long between hopefully between wrath and glory and imperium nihilus coming out Uh, and we also know they're working on you know future material beyond that which includes the the doom of the old r campaign so yeah, look, I mean, uh, once again, really happy with the interview. I hope you guys got something from it as well and that you've learned some more. Uh, you know, I hope we'll still talk to Ross going through. He's going to be pretty busy. I know he's actually gone to Las Vegas this week to catch up with the team uh, at Ulysses in, in North America to to work on the next part of a development. But uh, yeah, hopefully we're going to see this game uh, really grow into a, a, a formidable force in the coming months as they 
preview it at uh, things like Origins, Free RPG Day, whatever they do in May, and of course, the, whenever they launch it later on this year. Uh, so, look, I know because it's just me talking, I'm not going to probably do it. I, I was thinking, should I do another sort of discussion topic in this show? Uh, I'd rather it be a slightly shorter show, and we wait until Mike gets back, so I might move on to, to closing out the show now. All astropaths in the choir chamber, message incoming. So just to close out the show, we normally talk about any sort of comments or uh, reviews we've got. I've got to admit, I've been pretty slack with all my travel. I haven't actually had a chance to get on to check out for any in your review, so if you have left one recently, thank you very much. Uh, I did get a comment actually just uh, this morning from um, Jacob Smith via uh, our Facebook page, commenting on the um, the Wrath and Glory event that's been mentioned on Facebook, which now that I've actually checked my show notes, is down for the 2nd of May. Uh, so 2nd of May at 1700 uh, Central, Central Daylight Time. Uh, so basically saying that he hoped that we would be covering that on the show. So certainly, obviously, we've mentioned it here, we don't know any more than what's known on the on the Facebook page currently, but certainly, uh, yeah, we'll be following that with great interest. And uh, if there's you know big big new reveals, we will uh, uh, do it on our show. And it's actually uh, through a um, uh, a Twitch stream on Bell of Lost Souls as well. So uh, yeah, make sure you you check it out. Uh, apparently, according to uh, Facebook, it looks like there's actually a, it says tickets available. So I guess you've got to buy your way into it. But um, yeah, I guess we'll see what happens, and we'll certainly cover the outcomes. On the on the show as well. Uh, now, if you do want to contact us, well, sort of several ways to do that. Our website is www.grimdartpodcast.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com/grimdartpodcast. Our Google Plus page is plus.google.com/plus/sign/grimdartpodcast. We tweet through at grimdartpodcast, and our email address is show at grimdartpodcast.com. Uh, so anyway, uh, hopefully Mike is back. Well, Mike will be back definitely by the time we record next for episode ninety-four. Uh, once again, we'll just be following whatever is new with Wrath and Glory. Hopefully, there'll be a Marsh Designer Diary. Anything else we can learn? We are still planning that Harlock retrospective uh, with a couple of our players, but uh, at the moment, we're just going to stick with the shorter show today, given that Mike is away. And uh, I hope you got something from it. I hope you enjoyed the interview. I hope you uh, don't mind the, the slightly different format and uh, that you'll join us again next time when we're back to our, our normal methodology. Take care, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is not endorsed by or affiliated with Names Workshop or Ulysses North America. Or on the 40,000, Wrath and Glory, Dark Heresy, Rogue Trader, Death Watch, Black Crusade, Only War, and all associated properties are trademark and or copyright of Games Workshop Limited. Ulysses North America is a trademark of Ulysses Medium and Spiel Distribution GmbH. All other materials are trademarks of their respective owners. All original content is copyright of the Grim Dark Podcast. All rights are reserved by their respective owners. Our theme music was composed by Jens Kostoff and is used in the last.